27th of January, 2019. And what we're thinking about today is, it started. There's been lots of new chapters. Another new chapter has begun at NCF. But there's been lots of new chapters in NCF over the years. As God's led us and taken us to different places. And this is just another one. But I want to be very bold this morning, because that's kind of my character. And I want to sort of give you an idea of the agenda that I think us as a church, as a collection of people, should have for this year. Now, you might think that's very cheeky. That's okay. I don't mind. But what I want us to do is to look at what I think the agenda is for ourselves this year. And then if you're thinking, yes, that's a great idea, then we can all go for it, can't we? So, our agenda for 2019. I've got four ideas. Thank you, Paul. Here's idea number one. Embrace God wherever we are. Now, to me, the embrace God bit, and I've got a definition off the internet the other day, is to accept something or someone willingly and enthusiastically. So what my suggestion or my thing for me is, and more than likely for you as well, is we're going to embrace, we're going to accept God willingly and enthusiastically wherever we are. Seems like a good thing, doesn't it? Yeah. Right. Okay. How about the next one? Number two. Embrace God whatever day it is. Okay. Number three. Embrace God on our own or with others. Yeah. Number four. Embrace God no matter what the cost. Can you see this is a good agenda, isn't it? Now, you might sort of say... John, there's a common denominator I can see there. And it's this business of embracing God, of course. We want to embrace God, remember, to accept some, something or someone willingly and enthusiastically. And I, for myself, want to accept what God says to me, willingly and enthusiastically. It's one thing to accept it willingly, oh, thank you, God, <laughs> And it's another thing to be enthusiastic about something, but it's not really what God's saying. So I want to hear what God says and then follow what God says as well. And I can tell what you're thinking, probably each one of you. You're probably thinking, I've heard stuff like that before. And that's brilliant because the important thing is, even though you might have heard that from Paul before and Nick before, and now you're hearing it from me, the important thing is, two roles have changed very recently, but the top role has not changed at NCF. We are still looking to God as our only source and inspiration. So it might be that Paul's doing different things now and I'm doing different things. Our roles have changed, but God's role as our leader, as the one we look to, has not changed. So in one way, what we're doing now is not changing one iota. There might be a bit of an emphasis difference here or there, but I wrote a good sentence yesterday afternoon. I'm going to read this good sentence out to you. 
We're still called to praise God exuberantly, witness to others enthusiastically, and pray to God earnestly. I was very pleased I wrote that sentence. (laughs) It sounded great. But the more I read it and think about it now, I think, yeah, we want to embrace God in all these different things we're talking about, but we don't want to do it in a mediocre way. Just, yeah, that's all right. God said this. I'll, I'll do a bit here and there. But to be exuberant, enthusiastic, and earnest in what we're doing and what we're saying and praying. You've probably noticed something already. I've got a question here or a statement. John, I've noticed the cogs on each slide. What have they got to do with what you're talking about today? You've probably noticed that on every slide so far. It's had these cogs and things on the top. Last week when Nick was here, he spoke about the parts of the body. And that's all right for him. He knows he's a doctor. He's got years of experience about talking about the body. Whereas for me, that's a very mysterious thing. Whereas if you show me a piece of machinery, I think, wow, how interesting. Because I can see how things are made. And things are moving around and they touch one another. For instance, if you showed me Stevenson's rockets, I would be thinking, wow, that is such a great invention. Because it enabled transport to change in our country and all over the world. And it's all about cogs and things moving and things like that. So I know Paul in the Bible, as well as Paul over there, has talked about parts of the body. But for me, God talks about it in other ways. And to me, it's cogs in a machine, just going round and making sure that the machine is working. And so what I want us to think is a little bit about what Nick was saying last time. All of the cogs in our fellowship are needy. We can't just be a cog at NCF and not work. Because if we stop working, then it's going to have an influence. So, they didn't know it, but there's three people sitting at the front. Come to the front. I've just thought of this. This will be brilliant. Ken as well, if you don't mind. Thank you. Now, can you just stand with your arms out a bit like this? Right. Okay. So, we just want to be a little bit closer. Right. So that when you... In fact, you might be a bit dangerous there. How about, how about coming out to the front a little bit more? Oh, there's a space here. Let's do it over here. Do you mind, Ken? Is that all right? Oh, he's good, isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> right. So what I want you to do, is, Ken, is just to turn round, but with your arms slightly out. That's it. So that's it. Right. Just turn round and just keep going. keep going, just slowly. Now, Fiona, what I want you to do is put your arm out. So when he goes like that, you're going to go like this. All right. Now, Fiona, keep going. That's it. That's, oh, look at that. This is brilliant. I'm glad I came up with this idea. Well, you're going to go the opposite way, aren't you? Because that's what cogs do. I'll talk to you later about it. So, can you get the idea? Now, Fiona, I want you to stop still. Ken, keep on going. Arms down. No, arms down. How come you're still moving? You're not being touched by me. You're not, Ken's going round. Thank you, Ken. You're just such a great demonstrator. But Fiona stopped. Fiona has had an influence 
I'm Jill. And if I was here, by Fiona not carrying around being a cog, oh, I've stopped as well. Can you see how important it is for all of us to be the cogs that God's made us? Because we all have an influence on someone else. Thank you very much. Hey, thank you. So everything that we do is really important. We might be a little cog. We might be a big cog. But as we go around doing what God says, so our influence on other people is tremendous. And then as we're moving round and they go round, so their influence on other people is tremendous. So, embrace God wherever we are, whatever day it is, on our own, with others, no matter what the cost. The agenda is for all of us. Just because Paul is doing one day a week of paid work now, that doesn't mean he's doing less of this. Just because I'm doing more paid work in the church, it doesn't mean I'm doing more. And these are not just for John to do. So these are for all of us to do. God wants us all to embrace him, wherever we are, whatever the cost, and whenever we are, when we're on our own, or whether we're with other people as well. This morning, then, we're thinking about embracing God. But we want to sort of think, first of all, about some great examples from the Bible about people who were God embracers. And I bet straight away, several people have come to mind in your, in your thoughts. And I've thought of five people who embraced God. And remember, the people in the Bible, the, live, the people that lived 2,000 years ago, weren't special people. They were just like us. Life wasn't easier 2,000 or 3,000 or 4,000 years ago. They had their problems. They had their relationships they had to sort out. They were people just like us. I think Stephen was a God-embracer. Stoning is still a form of punishment in some countries. And it's a deliberately slow and painful death. It might take 15 or 20 minutes for someone to die. And as I've read about it this week, I found out the best sized stone is a medium one. You can throw it a lot harder, but also if it's a big stone, you're going to kill people much quicker. And that's not the point of stoning. The point of stoning is for it to be deliberately slow. And if, like me, you've stubbed your toe sometimes, or you've just hurt your elbow. I do that on a piano a lot. I sort of, uh, I'm moving around and then my, my elbow just, oh, that hurts. And it hurts for ages. That's just like one stone being thrown at you, stubbing your toe or hurting your elbow. Can you imagine what it's like for another 10 or 15 minutes of one stone hitting you and then another stone hitting you and then your head and sort of you start to feel really terrible really quickly but the pain increases the pain goes on and yet Stephen embraced God he didn't say out loud God where are you I've been doing your will how come these people are stoning me Lord there must be some mistake 
What's happening here? Why are you allowing this? He prayed for the people who were stoning him. Lord, forgive them their sins. So even in the wilderness experience, which it must have been for Stephen, he embraced God and said, Lord, I don't understand, but will you be glorified in this? Will you be praised? Paul and Silas. I read this chapter a lot, Acts 16. They embrace God. You might remember the story how they were thrown in prison because they'd been witnessing and, and some people's lives had been changed. And of course the thing is, Paul and Silas didn't have a pity party. Oh, you shouldn't have said that, Silas. If you'd have just been a bit quieter and did it really quietly, no one would have known that what we were doing. We could have worked for God. But we didn't really quietly, quietly. And Silas might have said, oh, but you said this and you were really exuberant and you did that. They weren't having a pity party, even though they were flung into the inner part of the prison. And it says they were severely flogged. What were they doing? They were singing Fanny Crosby songs, weren't they? To God be the glory, great things he hath done. Can you imagine it? They were having a praise party, not a pity party, because they were embracing God in their life. They didn't understand what God was doing, because you wouldn't in that situation, would you? But they knew that God was with them and that God would help them. And so instead of being all, oh, let's, oh Lord, help me, oh Lord, help me, Lord, you're the best. Let's praise God. Let's sing number 282 together. You know what I mean? They were praising God exuberantly. And we know what happened. Other people's lives got changed because of that. They embraced God in the wilderness when things were difficult. What about Abraham with Isaac? Genesis 22. You'll probably know the story. Abraham and Sarah longed to have a child and yet they didn't have one that's a pretty terrible place to feel to be in they prayed they embraced what God said and God promised a son and that this son would sort of go and uh, have lots of nations from him descended from him but then a few years later God says something to Abraham and Abraham, this is Genesis 22, says, here am I. And then God says, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain. I will show you. I wonder how Abraham felt. I'm pretty certain that he wouldn't have straight away said, yes, Lord, I'm going to do what you say. There'd have been several moments in my thoughts, in my imagination, where he would have questioned God and thought, Lord, is that you speaking? Is that you saying what I should be doing here? But he'd said, here am I. 
I'm going to do what you say, God. And he did. He went through with it. And right to the very end, he was going to sacrifice Isaac, wouldn't he? Even though he would have had hours, days of journeying to where it was going to happen. I bet he was chuntering to God some of the time, saying, Lord, are you really sure? I embrace what you're saying. I embrace what you want me to do. But are you really sure? Is that, am I really hearing from you right? So in Abraham's desert place, his wilderness experience, he too said, yes, Lord, I'm going to do what you say. He embraced what God said. David, I've got two examples from him. Can you remember the story near the beginning of 2 Samuel when the Ark of the Covenant wasn't in Jerusalem? And so David arranged that the Ark of the Covenant, which was in a person's house, would be taken to Jerusalem. So they put it on a cart and there was 30,000 men singing and dancing, yay, and all this. They were really exuberant and happy. But then the oxen stumbled and this chap called Uzziah, uh, Uzzah, I've forgotten his name, you'll tell me. Uzzah, that's what his name, I can see it just here now. So Uzzah put his hand out to steady the ark and what happened to him? He died because he shouldn't have touched what, the ark. Now, this is all David's fault because in the first place, the Ark of the Covenant shouldn't have been on a cart. It said it was a new cart, but that didn't make a blind bit of difference, really, because it shouldn't have been on an ark anyway. Because in Numbers 4.15 and Numbers 7.9, it says that the holy things were meant to be carried with poles. And that was a certain clan within the tribe of Levi, the Kohathites, that were meant to do the carrying. And Uzzah wasn't in that clan. So David had organised it, but he hadn't got it right. He got it wrong. I wonder how he felt. I bet he chunted on to God a little bit, saying, Lord, I thought I was doing what you said. How come this man's died? We're only doing what you said. Of course, about three months later, the journey continued and the Ark of the Covenant did go into Jerusalem. So God's plan did happen. But he embraced what God said, despite that person dying, despite being in the wilderness. How about another example from David, 2 Kings 11 and 12? It says at the beginning of chapter 11 that it was the springtime when the kings go off to war. And David stayed in Jerusalem. He sent his men off. Yeah, go and fight in God's name but I'm staying here. And again, I sort of read the Bible, and because I've got a good imagination, sometimes I think, oh, I wonder if this is what happened. And so my imagination getting going with what happened is, David went on the roof, it was a flat roof, and he was just looking around Jerusalem and just thinking, oh, this is great. Then he sees a naked lady. And he says, oh, I can't possibly look at her, and goes back in. But then the devil probably nudges him during the night as he's trying to get to sleep. And so the next day, he gets up and everything's great. And probably the devil might have said, oh, I wonder if you go up at the same time tonight on the roof. I wonder if you might see that naked lady again. 
So he listened to the devil's nudge and just went up on the flat roof. This time he did see her. But he didn't say, oh no, I can't do that, that's not right. He had a bit of a glance. I thought, hmm. And then went back down thinking, oh no, that's, that's wrong now, I shouldn't be doing that, that's not a good thing to do. And in my imagination, this might have gone on for several days, where he'd go up at a certain time, just as a coincidence, he'd tell himself, and there's that lady, bathing herself. And each time, he'd look a bit longer, a little bit more intently. Because it was only a little bit more from the day before, the first day, he didn't want to look at all. It was just wrong. That is not right. But over a period of several days, maybe he just looked a little bit longer, a little bit more, because it was easier. Because yesterday, he'd done a bit more than the day before. It's easy to blame the devil nudging us and not to take responsibility for ourselves. And we know it didn't just stay with looking at Bathsheba, but then he had sex with her and her husband was murdered because of what David had said. So just from a slight glance and not wanting to do it, perhaps in my imagination, maybe your imagination is different, he was a murderer and an adulterer, uh, uh, adulterer because he'd taken several steps instead of just saying no and turning his back on the whole lot and not going back on the roof because he knew it might happen there. So Nathan went, who was God's prophet, to talk to David about it. And David took responsibility. He didn't say, oh, it was just a weakness. Oh, it's, it's just, I'm just like that. I couldn't help it. But he took responsibility. And you might know it's in Psalm 51 that we read about David's response. How he wanted to repent and make restitution for what he'd done. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and remove and uh, renew a steadfast spirit within me. So he knew he'd done wrong. He knew he'd taken several steps to go to those wrong places. And yet, he knew he had to repent and say, Lord, I have sinned, I have done wrong, help me to change. He met God in a desperate place, in a place of wilderness, and changed because God spoke to him in the wilderness. What about Thomas? Now, some people really have a a downer on Thomas, They call him Doubting Thomas. I think that's all wrong. Can you imagine what it was like being one of Jesus' disciples? Judas had gone. And so there was 11 left. And Thomas was sort of at Ikea or somewhere, you know, he was just doing some chores. And so he wasn't with the other disciples. But Jesus came along and the ten disciples saw him. And of course, when Thomas joined them, Jesus had gone. And so they said, oh, Thomas, you'll never guess what. This is what happened, la, 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 blah, blah, blah. And Thomas said, yeah, is that right? But that's okay. 
Because maybe Thomas was more of a scientific chap. Maybe that was his, his life, his character, where he wanted to see proof because he wanted to see proof every day of everything. So what's the difference about having proof of Jesus? And of course, when he did see Jesus a few days later, he had no doubt that it was Jesus. It was just his character. He wanted to see proof because that was the kind of scientific person he was. So when he saw Jesus, he said, Hokurius theas mu, because he didn't speak English. And so, of course, what he said was, my Lord and my God. There was no doubt there at all, was there? He was inquisitive. He was a scientist, perhaps, and he wanted to know more about God. And in the years to come, for the next 40 years, he embraced God even more because he went to places like Iran and India, maybe the Far East. What a great disciple he was. What an inquisitive fellow, I'd say he was. Remember, all these people were just like us. They weren't special people because they were in the Bible. They were people just like us. They had their problems and they had their relationships. A few months ago, we listened to a song by uh, Laura Story called Blessings. It was on a Sunday morning and this is sort of, we watched it for about three minutes or so. And this song is all about how God can speak to us when times are hard and that we might want the times of hardness and difficulty to go. But maybe God is wanting to speak to us through those difficult times. And this is part of the lyrics. What if trials of this life, the rain, the storms, the hardest nights, are your mercies in disguise? And if you want to see the video, there's a link to it on the notes on our website that will go on this afternoon. Often in our lives, we want Jesus, the Lord, to be our shepherd. We want him to make us lie down in green pastures and lead us beside quiet waters. We want our souls to be refreshed. But my question for you today is, if God takes you to the desert this year, will you embrace him there? God doesn't force him force us to love him. And there's a verse in Hosea I've been reading over the last few days where God didn't just say, go to the desert because you've been bad. It says this in Hosea 2.14, Therefore, behold, I will allure her. I'm going to woo her. I'm going to encourage her to come to the desert. And I'm going to speak comfortably unto her another version says this but once she has nothing this is from the voice I'll be able to get through to her I'll entice her and lead her out into the wilderness where we can be alone and I'll speak right to her heart and try and win her back in the desert there aren't things to take our watch off Jesus. There aren't things to make us think about other things. The desert is just us and God. We have to rely on God in the wilderness because there aren't the other things that we can rely on. And I know already 
it's only like near the end of January and some people have experienced a desert place already this year. God might take us to the desert to take away distractions. God is with us in the wilderness, in the desert. In the Hebrew, the wilderness is called the Midbar. And the Midbar comes from the root word Dabar, that means to speak. The wilderness can be a place where God speaks. It's the place where we can hear his voice clearly. In Exodus 3, God called Moses into the wilderness and spoke to him through the burning bush. After 1 Kings 18, Elijah, who'd been on Mount Carmel and done terrific things for God, went to a desert place. And God spoke to him in a still, small voice. John the Baptist was in the wilderness. And God spoke through him and to him in the wilderness. And Jesus himself was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. Is God going to call us into the wilderness this year so that we can hear him speak to us clearly? without distractions. Psalm 121, verses 1 and 2. I look up to the mountains. Does my help come from there? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. People can rely on something that they think is really rock solid, the mountains, or their health, or having a good job, or just good relationships. But our our help doesn't come from those things. Our help comes from the Lord. So whether we feel we're in a desert place, or whether we feel we're on a mountaintop, our help comes from God. Isaiah 43 verse 2. When you go through deep waters, I'll be with you. When you go through rivers of difficulty, you will not drown. When you walk through the fire of oppression, you will not be burned up. The flames will not consume you. Sometimes as a Christian, I think, Lord, I've changed enough. Thank you for changing me already, but I've changed enough. Maybe you've thought the same. But it's perhaps in the wilderness that we realise, when it's just us and God, that we can say, Lord... There is such a long way for me in my Christian life still to go. I want to embrace you with all my heart and all my energy and every day of the week with others, with other people, without other people. But Lord, I know there's a long way still to go. And over the next few weeks, we're going to be thinking about being disciples of Jesus. Because in my mind, we've all been converted, perhaps, to God. And for me, being converted is just a a one-off thing. We're converted. But as the next few weeks go by and we think about Jesus' 12 disciples and what discipleship means, so we can say, Lord, thank you for the process after conversion, the process of learning more about you. It's seven years ago already since the Olympics were in London. And they started on the 27th of July. But if you read about it, 
just from general knowledge, you'll know that the Olympics weren't ready straight away. There was a long process after the announcement and before that London was going to do it. And it's the same in our lives. It's a process that as God leads us in happy times and in the harder times, so we can say, Lord, I want to learn more about you and meet you in the desert place, embrace you in the desert place, get to know you in the desert place, if that's if it's your calling for me. So our agenda, it is to embrace God in all those ways, wherever we are and however we feel. Just some verses to finish with. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses who by faith have testified to the truth of God's absolute faithfulness, stripping off every unnecessary weight and the sin which so easily and cleverly entangles us, let us run with endurance and active persistence the race that is set before us, looking away from all that will distract us, and focusing our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of faith, the first incentive for our belief, and the one who brings our faith to maturity, who for the joy of accomplishing the goal set before him endured the cross, disregarding the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, revealing his deity, his authority, and the completion of his work. So we're going to pray, and we're going to respond with some songs and things, but we're going to say, Lord, help me in the life that I have over these next few weeks and months to embrace you fully, wholeheartedly, without reservation, wherever I am, Lord, because I know that you are with me. And the desert place may seem to last a while, but you will bring me through and bring me into new life. So, Lord, we do thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you are with us. Lord, And we open our hearts to you. If we're in a desert place today, Lord, we say, thank you, you are with me. Help me to hear your voice and to know your love for me. Lord, our heart is to embrace you, to do things enthusiastically and accept you as our Lord and Saviour again. And that's what we do. Lord, we thank you for calling us to be your bride, your people. So with all our hearts, Lord, we say, be our Lord and Saviour and help us, Lord, to follow you with every fibre of our being and all the energy that we have wherever we are. Amen.